to the book of James, chapter 5, and that is the passage that Pastor Ben read uh, for our corporate reading together. As you're turning there, let me just mention, uh, and I know that uh, Pastor Ben will have some more to say about this at the end of our time together, but yesterday was the funeral of Bob Garrett, and many of you who are new to our church may not know Bob. Uh, Bob and Joanne were uh, originally part of the very first group of people that were God used to start Palmetto Baptist Church 11 years ago, and uh, Bob was um, working with uh, Jason, our, our Jason Ormiston, our founding pastor, and was very instrumental in helping us locate here in Powdersville and very faithful in his uh, uh, support of this church, he and Joanne. And uh, this weekend he went home to be with the Lord, and I was so sorry not to be able to be at the funeral. I was on my way home from Florida, and the funeral was yesterday, but I know that many of our folks who knew Bob were there, and I'm so thankful for him. And I would ask you to just uh, pray for his family and uh, just thank the Lord for such a faithful uh, supporter of not just this local church, but of many aspects of the Lord's uh, labor and the Lord's harvest together. So thankful for people like that. Well, we are back in James chapter 5, and uh, we are going to make our way through verse 12, the Lord willing, this morning. We are coming now to the end of the book, and we have been for many weeks now looking at what James has been exhorting us to do as believers. And we noted at the very front end of the book, that James is talking to people who have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And as citizens of a new kingdom, they have been called by God, they have been commissioned by God to live out the values of that new kingdom in the little kingdoms of the world where God has placed them. And we have revisited that idea regularly throughout our series. And the whole point that James is calling us to consider is that as we live our lives in the little kingdoms of the world, we are to display the living faith that characterizes every person who is a member of the big kingdom of God. And we noted that that faith is marked by three things. It is wholehearted, it is single-focused, and it is fully trusting. And we have said that together faithfully every Sunday that we have been considering what Pastor James has been teaching us. And so I'd like to say it this morning. I've missed saying it last week. Let's say it together this morning. James is calling us to develop a living faith and display that faith. And that faith is wholehearted, it is single-focused, and it is fully trusting. All right, we're a little bit out of practice, so we're going to do it one more time because I really want to make sure it's seated down in our heart. There's not just words that we're repeating. The kind of faith that James wants us to cultivate is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting in God and in His Word. And so we have been tracing the journey of how that is cultivated in the life of a believer. And when we get to chapter 5, we note that as, as God has been cultivating that kind of faith in us, we are called to display that faith in very, very hard places and in difficult spaces in life. 
And so that was where we began as we opened up chapter 5. What do we do when God calls us to sow seeds of grace in hard soil? How do we handle life when God has dealt with us about our double-mindedness, He's confronted us about our, 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 our weak faith, He's dealt with the issue of temptation, He's helped us to see all that we have seen in the first four chapters, and we, we kind of look up from what James has been saying to us, and we now look out to the little kingdom where God has put us, whether it's Easley or Powdersville or Greenville or wherever you're from, and you start looking at what it is actually going to take for your living faith to be lived out in that set of circumstances, and you start to discover that the circumstances that are facing you are extremely difficult. And not all of the difficulty is internal. Some of that difficulty is coming from people who are bent on standing against the faith that you are displaying. And so we noted that James, as he talks to people who are sowing the seeds of grace in the soil of unjust opposition or unexplained suffering, comforts them. So what we're looking at in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, is the unique comfort that God gives to believers who are displaying a wholehearted, fully trusting, single-focused faith in tough places. And that's where many of us are. That's where some of you are this morning. That's where some of you have been all summer. That's where some of you have lived for the last 12 months. And you just haven't said a whole lot about it. But you've been under the weight of pressure. Some of that pressure has maybe been internal as you've tried to navigate things that God has allowed into your life or into your set of circumstances. Some of that pressure may be uh, external. It may be things that other people are doing and choices that they are making and words they are saying that are affecting you. But you've been living where James is talking. And so James, in these 12 verses, intends to give you comfort. And we noted that the word comfort, as we use it in this context, is not the kind of comfort we're talking about when we sit down next to somebody who is perhaps weeping or in deep sorrow and we kind of put our hand around them and say, what's wrong? I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm, I'm so grieved that you are going through this. And there's a, I'm, please don't misunderstand me. We need to do that. And that's a part of being a Christian family together. We, we sorrow with those who sorrow. We grieve with those who grieve. We hurt with those who hurt. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here as that's not an appropriate thing. That's a necessary thing in the body of Christ. But that's not what these verses are intended to do. When James is talking about the word comfort, he is talking about the idea of establishing, strengthening, putting iron in your soul. And so these verses are intended to strengthen us so that as we endure the opposition or we bear up under the suffering, we are not crushed by it and we are not blown off course by it. That's the idea that James is talking about. 
And so how does he provide that comfort in these words? And he does it in two ways. What he does as these holy harvesters are sowing seeds of grace in extremely difficult soil is he gives them words that God has given to him. So he's, he's encouraging them, and we noted that the word encourage there is the idea of strengthen. He's putting iron in their soul, and he's doing it by giving them words that God has given to him. And if you remember, we spent a little bit of time looking at that idea that there is something about the words that God has given us that are different from any other kind of words. As you sit here this morning, you are listening to me give you words about the words that God gave to James. And as helpful as I hope my words are, they cannot do what the words that God gave to James can do. And if you have to pick which set of words you're going to hang on to, there ought to be no choice in front of you. You always want to hold on to the words that God gave you in his word. And so we noted that these words that James is, is articulating, these words that are coming from James, are actually inspired words, and they are intended by God to do something in your life that my words can never do, or that somebody else's words about these words can ever do. And so as we look at these words, we need to dig into these words and find out what God has put there that puts iron in our soul. And and we find two things that God does. He, He gives us powerful promises, and he points us to the example of past people who suffered. And that's what we see here. And we noted as we looked at verses 1 through 6 that James started off by saying, now here's something that will put iron in your soul as you, you sow seeds of grace in a hard place. And when you're in that hard place, there are people who are opposing you. There are people who are abusing you. There are people who are maligning you. There are people who are taking you to court. There are people who are doing everything they can to make life difficult for you. James says, I have a reminder for you. And what he, what he reminds us of in verses 1 through 6 is that God sees and God knows exactly what is going on. And just like in the Old Testament law, there had to be two witnesses that would stand up and would bear testimony about a matter. There are two witnesses in verses 1 through 6 that are going to stand up and bear witness to the opposition and to the unjust conduct of a certain group of people who should know better. And those two witnesses are the wages that have been withheld from the workers and the prayers, the workers have been crying out to God for justice. And James says, the Lord of hosts, remember that term? We looked at that term, and we noted that the Lord of hosts is actually a, a title of God, and it's his, it's his going to war title. In the ancient world, one of the things that happens uh, when, when nations went to war, their kings led the war. 
And here is God's going to war title. The Lord of hosts is literally the Lord of armies. And James is saying, now, as you endure what you're enduring, and as you suffer under the unjust or abusive treatment that you are experiencing from the hands of people that ought to know better, the Lord of armies is seeing what is going on, and he knows, and he will bring just recompense on those who are abusing you. So that's the first thing we noted. The second way in which James puts iron in our soul as we sow seeds of grace in the hardest soil, the the second way is that he exhorts us to do something. The first way was he reminded us of something. The second way is that he exhorts us to do something. He exhorts us to endure faithfully by strengthening our heart with a certain promise. And you can see that in verse 7. He says, therefore, my brothers, be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So here's an exhortation that James says. As a holy harvester, when you find yourself being placed by God in a dark place and in a hard space, and God says to you, I want you to stay there, and I want you to sow seeds of grace. I want you to display a kind of living faith that is wholehearted. It is single-focused. It is fully trusting, and I want you to do it there. And I want you to do it in that hard place that you would rather not be in. I want you to do it in that space that you would give anything to be out of. And I'm going to put some iron in your soul by encouraging you and exhorting you to strengthen your heart with a certain promise. So let's look at this text uh, this morning and, and see where God, how God unpacks it. The word patient that occurs three times in these verses, verses 7 and 8, is not the same word that we found back in chapter 1 when James talked about the idea of patience or endurance. This is a different word. This word is actually a word, and it shows up three times in this text, so we know that it's an important concept. If if we're going to be sowing seeds of grace in a hard place and in a dark space, we're going to need this. And so James says, I'm going to talk to you about this three times. So the word patient here is the word for long-suffering. It's the idea of suffering, unjust treatment, in a certain way for a long period of time. And the idea here is that you would do this with grace, that there would be a gracious self-restraint in your words and in your actions when you are in a place where other people are putting pressure on you or making life difficult for you. That's the idea. James is not just saying, bear up. He is actually talking to you about the attitude in which that bearing up takes place. There ought to be a gracious self-restraint that comes to your mouth 
and comes to the way that you respond when you are in this kind of a place. And then he turns to an example. He says, now I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. And I'm thinking that he's going to go right to the prophets because that's exactly what they endured. But that's not where he goes first. He takes you to an illustration that I, I did not see coming. He takes you to a farmer. When he wants you to understand what this sort of gracious self-restraint and kindness and faithfulness looks like under pressure, he says, go to the farmer and watch what the farmer does. And, and so what does the farmer do? Well, notice as James talks about this, see how the farmer waits. When, when James says to you, okay, when I want you to think about a farmer, I'm thinking he's going to talk to me about hoeing or plowing or planting, but that's not what he says. He says, when you go to that farmer, the thing I want you to look at is I want you to look at the waiting that he does. He's already planted. He is waiting for something. He is active. He's not passive. He's not just sitting around and doing nothing. I mean, he is fully engaged. That's the idea here. James says, I want you to look at a farmer who's fully engaged in what he's doing with his crops, but what I want you to observe about this fully engaged farmer is that he's waiting. And what is he waiting for? He's waiting for God to do something. He's waiting for God to send what? Rain. He's waiting for God to send rain. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. In other words, he's put his seed in, he's tending to it, and he is anxiously looking forward to the harvest, but he is waiting for God to send the rain. And not just any rain. He's waiting for the early and the late rains. If you lived in Israel in um, the time that James lived, and you uh, just walked around, you would immediately recognize that the entire economy was based on agriculture. The entire economy was, it was an agrarian economy. It was, it was based on flocks and herds and fields. And, and so the idea of rain coming was extremely important because Israel is a land with very, very little fresh water. They're bounded by the Mediterranean Sea, and then they have on the south end of the land the Dead Sea, and so the only source of fresh water is the Sea of Galilee up in the north part and and the wells that people would dig. So people were very, very dependent on rain. And it's interesting that God himself acknowledged this in the book of Deuteronomy. If you'd like to write in your Bible, let me encourage you to write this reference down. Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 14. Where God said to Moses, now I want you to give my people these words about the land that I'm taking them to. And you start reading what Moses is saying to them, and it is an amazing statement of blessing. He's talking about their barns. He's talking about the fruitfulness of their families. He's just talking about how God is going to abundantly bless these people. 
And then you go to the land and you begin to realize none of this is going to happen without water. And God said to Moses, you tell my people that when they obey my word, I will send them rain. I will send them rain. It's interesting that in Joel chapter 2, Joel talks about the early rains and the late rains. There, were, there was an early period of rain that God would send immediately after the fields were, were sown with seed, and that seed would then be watered, and then it would start to grow. And then toward the end of the growing season, there would be another set of rains that would come, the late rains, and that would lead right into the harvest time. And Israel's economy rested on those two rains the early rain and the late rain. And the prophet Joel is actually going to take those two rains and he is going to take that metaphor and he's going to say, now when Messiah comes, it's going to be like those rains. When Messiah finally gets here, all of the work that you have done as a nation, talking to Israel, and, and James now talking to believers, all of the seed that you have been sowing in this hard place and in this hard space, all of it will be harvested because of the rains that God will send. When Messiah comes, he will reap that harvest. That's the idea that's here. When, when James says, now I want you to go to the farmer, he's being extremely intentional. There's something about that farmer he wants you to see, and what he wants you to see is the confident expectation that keeps that farmer going every single day as he waits for the precious fruit of the seed that he sowed, and what he's waiting for that will give all of it life is the rain that God will send. And James is using that same idea to talk about a promise. And the promise is of the coming of somebody. If you notice what he says here in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is saying, all right, just like that farmer is waiting for God to send something, he's going to send rain so that the harvest will grow and, and be reaped. You also are waiting for God to send something. Except in this case, it's not a something, it's a someone. And what you're waiting for God to send is Messiah. And that's Joel 2. The early and the late rains became in the minor prophets a metaphor for the coming of Messiah. Just like God sends rain to to help us harvest our crops, God is going to send Messiah. He's going to be the early and the late rain that God sends. And that's why the farmer is smack in the middle of this passage that, that James is using about gracious waiting, gracious long suffering as we live in that hard space and in that dark place and we sow day after day after day seeds of a living faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. And by the way, some of those spaces are very, very hard. Some of you have been sowing seeds of living faith in a marriage that's been very, very hard for you. 
Some of you have been doing it in a context where you have been totally misunderstood. And no matter what you've tried to say or what you've tried to do or how you've tried to unpack it, you can't seem to get out of the hole that other people have dug for you. And God says, I I want you to display and I want you to sow the seeds of grace in a wholehearted, single-focused, living faith that's fully trusting in that hard place. Some of you are doing it in a very dark place. You have, you have been searching and searching and searching, and it's like the heavens are silent to you. You're crying out to God, and, and, and you've, made, you've made a small ocean or a small lake of tears in your house as you've been crying your heart out to God for help or for understanding or, or for direction, and it's like the, the heaven is silent to you. And you come to church, and we sing these wonderful hymns, and you hear these words, and your heart gets a little bit of hope, and then you head right back out, and within three days, you're right back in that ocean because it's dark. Some of you in this room have gone through unimaginable pain that's been inflicted on you by other people. And so you come to a church like this, and you don't talk about it, and you don't, can hardly even think about it. And James says, now I have, I have some hope for you. I have some help. I'm going to put iron in your soul. God knows what happened to you and who did it. But look at this farmer who waits. And he waits intentionally. It's an active waiting. It's not like, I'm, I'm just done I'm not going to do anything more. I'm done with it, and I'm just going to sit here until I either die or the Lord comes. And James says, that's not what I'm talking about. When you look at this farmer, he's intentional. He's active. This is an active waiting that is gracious and self-restrained as it sows these seeds of grace in these awful places in the kingdom of darkness. And James says, now let me encourage you with the rain. Let me encourage you with the rain. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Remember we talked about how there's an early rain and a late rain and how the minor prophets in the Old Testament and even even people like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel took these ideas of early and late rain and they said just like the farmer waits for God to send rain, Israel, you need to wait for God to send Messiah. You need the early and late rain of Messiah. And as you read those prophets and you start listening to them describe the early and the late rains, they weren't thinking that Messiah would come in two stages. They were using that illustration of early and late rain to say, this is like Messiah coming. And so in Matthew chapter 2, when Messiah shows up, everybody's going, the rain is here. It's finally here. And it's awesome. And you start reading about this rain in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and, and this this person, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Messiah, he is going everywhere in the kingdom of darkness and he is displaying his authority and his power over the forces of darkness. Nothing can stand in his way. I mean, he could just speak a word and an entire storm stops. 
He, he can touch a person and reverse years of physical deformity. He can heal the most unbelievable diseases. And by the time you get to John, you've already witnessed on two occasions where he's reversed even death itself. The rain has come. And then Jesus said something really interesting. He said, now when I come back, and if you were like the disciples and you were walking around and you were like, man, this is awesome. The rain is here. The prophets were right. This is all going great. And then Jesus said, all of a sudden, and when I come back, you'd be going, huh? What? What'd you, hang on a second. What'd you just say? Now, when I come back, what do you mean when you come back? And then you have this beautiful section in John 14, 15, and 16 where Jesus starts to explain to the shocked, blown out of their minds disciples about the fact that he was going away so that he could do something and come back. And all of a sudden, all the lights on the board start blinking. You should, all these connections should start happening to you. You now begin to understand about the early rain and the what? The late rain. The early rain is the first coming. The late rain is the second coming. And where are you? You're right in the middle. You're right where the farmer was. The farmer has sowed his seed in the illustration, right? He's waiting for the precious fruit. The seed has been sown. The first rain has fallen. He's actually waiting for the second rain. And that's exactly what you're doing. That's exactly what I'm doing. And James says, just like the first coming happened, the second coming is happening. And the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is is at hand. And the idea of coming there, it's not just the idea of, hey, are you coming? You know, sometimes when uh, you're going someplace and there's a certain person in your house that isn't coming and, and you're sitting there and you're going, we got to get rolling. You know, I, I mean, no husbands ever do this, but, you know, we got to get moving here. And then you're, you know, like, you're like, are you coming, dear? And after an appropriate, like, three seconds, honey, are you coming? We got to go. It's time. We got to go. And, and, and then all of a sudden, this wonderful date that you were going on uh, takes on a different tenor, right? And so you learn after a while, okay, do I want to have a really nice date or do I want to go, are you coming? Do I get, you know, and so you got to make choices like this. Well, that's not what James is talking about. He's actually talking about the arrival And it's not just any arrival. It's the arrival of somebody that has been long anticipated. It would be the idea that that a city or town would be alerted that the emperor was coming through the city and they needed to be prepared to receive the emperor. And the preparation would take months, if not years. Roads would be rebuilt. Buildings would be established. All kinds of things would happen in that city because they knew that at certain time the emperor was coming. And the idea here is the same. That's the idea behind the word coming. James is saying the arrival of the Lord of hosts that we talked about up in, in the first part of the chapter, he's coming and you need to be prepared for his arrival. The second reign is coming. And so, what are we supposed to do while we wait? So here I am, 
and I'm in this hard spot. I'm in this dark place. I don't know how much longer I can carry on. I don't know how much longer I can endure this. I, I, my wholehearted faith is starting to weaken. My single-focused faith is, is starting to sort of fragment a little bit. My fully trusting faith is starting, if we're honest, to have some doubts. And James says, let me put some iron in you. Let me point you to a farmer so that you strengthen your heart by a particular promise. Just like the first rain came when Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago, there is a second rain coming, and it will come just as surely as the first rain came. And I'm like, okay, so what am I supposed to do now? Here I am. I'm the farmer. I've been sowing these seeds of grace in this hard place. First rain has come. I don't know when the second rain is coming. It could, it could come at any moment. That's the idea of at hand. It could come at any moment. What am I supposed to do? And so that's the third thing that we see in this text. James encourages us by pointing to two examples. And he, he, he points us to examples of people who endured patiently and who suffered well. So what are the two examples? Well, he gives you the first one, the prophets who endured unjust persecution with gracious long-suffering for God. And we could go through the prophets and we could find out in almost every case, in almost every case, they were opposed, they were maligned, and they suffered because they spoke the truth of God to the people of God. With only two exceptions, or three actually, if you have Obadiah and Nahum and Jonah, all of the prophets spoke to God's people. They weren't speaking to the other nations. They were speaking to God's people, and they were speaking to God's people about their departure from God's Word. You know, it's something in a church like ours, when we stand up and we start speaking truth about the culture which we need to do, and we do appropriately here. But it's another thing entirely when you start talking truth to the people that need to live in that culture. It's a whole lot easier, and and it's a whole lot more receptive in our hearts when we're talking about what's happening in the world of politics and in the world of wokeness and in the world of this or that or the other and what's going on in the news But all of a sudden, when we come to the prophets, that's not what they're talking about. And when you read James, that's not what he's talking about. He's actually going to people who have to live in that culture, and he's saying, now you be a farmer in that culture. You sow seeds of grace by displaying your wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith in God in the midst of that culture. And you be like the prophets who endured whatever they had to endure. I mean, let me just give you two examples. Jeremiah began his prophetic office at 20 years of age, and he preached for 40 years to Israel. He had a 40-year ministry. And that 40-year ministry was incredible. He was ridiculed. He was resisted. He was persecuted. He was mocked. He was thrown down a pit. He was exiled to Egypt by the people that he was trying to help. His friend Isaiah had a 60-year ministry. 
Jeremiah had a 40-year ministry. Isaiah had a 60-year ministry to these same people. And at the end of his ministry, King Manasseh took him, bound him over a log, and had somebody saw him in half. And he's mentioned in the book of, or he's referenced obliquely in Hebrews chapter 11. And God said, now, I want you to think about those prophets, what they endured in their day and how they are seen today. And, and when you look at what they are seen as today, they are all seen as heroes. Everybody would say, in fact, people were saying, look, if we had been living in their day, we would never have done this to Jeremiah. We would never have done this to Isaiah. We would never have responded this way to Amos. We would never have treated Micah the way we treated him. We would never have done this if we had been the generation living back then. And and James is saying this is always the way it is with the prophetic voice that God calls us to speak to ourselves and to the culture. As we speak truth to the culture and we speak truth to ourselves, we can expect the same thing that the prophets experienced in their own day. Knowing that there will be coming a day when Messiah comes, when just like they were vindicated in that generation, we also will be vindicated. And then he says, let me give you A second example, there are the prophets who endured unjust persecution, but there is also Job. And you can see this in verse 11. And we're going to actually take time uh, to look at these two friends of God more in depth in, in a future message. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets, verse 10. Behold, we consider those blessed who endured. There's our word that showed up in chapter 1. The idea of enduring a trial, verse 11. So, you have heard of the steadfast of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So, the prophets endured unjust persecution, and Job endured something even harder. Job endured unexplained suffering. That cost him everything except his life. And there was no explanation. Job knew what he knew about God, and he knew what he knew about himself, and that's all he knew. And he had three of the wisest men representing the wisdoms of the nations around him come to him and try to explain to him what was really happening. And all Job could say to them was, I don't understand how to explain this to you. I don't understand how it all works. But here's what I know about God, and here's what I know about me. And what you're telling me isn't right. And this goes on for more than half the book. And in this book, Job is going to speak in the most difficult space that a person can occupy. In in the most horrific of conditions, he is going to speak faithfully about God to his wife. He's going to say to her, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? I mean, is the only thing we can expect from God just good things? Are we just going to follow him and be loyal to him when he's good to us? What about when he allows some tragedy like we're experiencing? And then he spoke truthfully before God to his 
counselors. And he spoke honestly and transparently to God about his own pain. And at the end of the day, Job says, when he's told by his closest companion on earth, how long are you going to hold on to this kind of a God who does this kind of a thing? How long are you going to keep talking this way about God? Can't you see what God has done to us? Can't you see what he's done to our family? Can't you see what he's done to our, our wealth? Can't you see what he's done to your skin? Can't you see what God's done? Why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Where did Job get that kind of iron in his soul? Because I need that, and you need that. And Job got that iron from a promise and a belief that he held that was unshakable. In Job 19, 25 through 26, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He's a living Redeemer. And I know there is coming a day where in this body that is broken and battered and, 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 and diseased and all the things that have happened to it, I know that in this body I will see him with my eyes. And that iron in his soul kept Job from being blown off course and from being crushed. And by the way, that's the iron that James points you to when he says, consider Job's end. And what you learn at the end of Job is something that you've known about God from the very beginning. The Psalms say it all the time. The Lord is full of mercy and He's full of goodness. And He's merciful and He's good to you. And James says that's the iron you're going to need. You're going to need the past examples of people like the prophets and the past example of a man like Job so that you can look and see the end. And the end of the prophets was vindication. And the end of Job was mercy and kindness and goodness. And that isn't just for prophets who lived in the Old Testament. And that isn't just for a patriarch named Job. That is for you. James says, as, as, as Pastor James talks to us, he's saying these words about those prophets and that patriarch are your words. Consider and, and note something as you consider the prophets and note something as you consider Job. They were counted blessed. And this is certainly our lot as well. And the final thing that he says is this. Now that you know what God is up to, here's my final warning to you. Resist graceless behavior toward each other and resist graceless words toward God. Notice what he says in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. 
You know, the temptation when you're under pressure and there's pain and suffering and it's prolonged and you're way past the period of people coming along going, hey, we're praying for you. And the email, encouraging emails have stopped and the sympathy cards are long past, but here you are and you're in year nine of your trial. And, and you just are so burdened down, it gets real easy to start grumbling in your heart against God and against the leaders God puts over you and against God himself. And if you want to see what this looks like in the book of Numbers, it, it's clear. I mean, 10 different times in Numbers 14, God says, you have rebelled. You have murmured against me these 10 times. And James says, now I want to exhort you as you look at the farmer and you get this iron in your heart, here's what you need to resist. Do not grumble against one another. And then he says, don't make rash vows. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you do not fall under condemnation. We're going to come back to this verse, but let me end with this. What happens to me and what happens to you when we're under pressure is not just that we tend to use our mouth inappropriately toward others or about others. I'm frustrated, and you just happen to be in the way, and now you become the target of my frustration in my words. So I use angry words toward you, or I say angry things about you to somebody else. And James says, don't grumble that way. That, that will destroy your wholehearted, single focus, fully trusting faith and its impact on other people. But also, don't use your words in wrong ways to God. Because here's what tends to happen. When I, when I am in a hard place or a hard space and God has appointed me there, I start making promises to God. God, if you'll just get me out of here, I'll do this. And okay, if that's not enough, I'll up the ante. How about if I put this on the table? Or how about this? God, if you'll just relieve this, if you just fix this, if you'll get me out of here, I promise I'll do X, Y, and Z. I'll, I'll go here. I'll serve in this way. And we make these rash vows to God in an effort not so much to please God and to make ourselves available to God, but to get out of whatever mess we're in or whatever hard spot we're in. And by the way, folks, we've all done versions of this, haven't we? I mean, the clearest example of this is in the Old Testament in the book of Judges when a man named Jephthah makes a rash promise to God and he says, Lord, if you'll give me the victory, the first thing that comes out the door of my house when I get home, I'll sacrifice to you. And you're like, you ever talk to your Bible? You're like, no, 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 Jephthah. No, I've I've read the whole story. You don't want to do that. If you could counsel Jephthah, what would you say to him? If you could say one thing to Jephthah at the beginning of the whole thing, you would be, now, Jephthah, you don't know this. I know your brothers are cranking on you about your heritage, and and you got all this mess going on in your life, but trust me, it's going to get really good. People are going to come to you because of your might and your power, and they're going to put you on top of the army, and you're going to be like the man. And when that happens, let me just tell you one thing. I'm not going to, like, do the spoiler with you, but, but let me just tell you one thing. Don't make any promises to anybody. Here or there, don't make any promises. 
Okay, Jephthah, you got that? Wouldn't you love to be able to go back and just talk to Jephthah? But, but nobody did that. God didn't think you and me were wise enough to transport us back there because he'd already said that in the book of Deuteronomy. And so here's Jephthah, and he's like, God, you know what? I need out of this mess. I, I, need, I need this victory really bad. And so can you please, can you please, if you'll just do this for me, then here's what I'm going to put on the table. It's like we're making a deal with God. And before we jump up and down on Jephthah, we do the same thing. Lord, I really want this. I really want this job, or I really want this person in my life, or I don't want this. And all of a sudden, we start making deals with God, and James says, that does not honor God. What honors God is when you are like that farmer, and God says, I've put you in this row, and I know it's hard. I know the soil is brittle, and it's, it's, it's burning hot, and I know it's, it's, it's a dark place. It's a hard place, but I need a faithful farmer who's going to sow seeds of grace in that row because I intend to harvest people out of this row, and you're the farmer I'm putting there. And instead of trying to get me to get you out of there with all of these vows and promises that you're making, how about you use your mouth to be gracious to the people that are hurting you so that the seed of grace can root deep in that soil? And you're like, well, that, that's hard. Exactly. That's the whole point to chapter 5. If it weren't hard, James wouldn't be talking to us the way that he's talking. And he's coming right at us and he's saying, let me warn you not to grumble and let me warn you not to make vows with God that you don't intend to keep. This is exactly what Ecclesiastes 5 is talking about. When people are going to the house of God, and Solomon says, now when you go to the house of God, close your mouth and open your ears. It's just like James 1. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak. And Ecclesiastes 5 Solomon says, and don't make rash vows. You know, folks, I don't know where you are today, but it wouldn't surprise me that if, if, you aren't, if there aren't one or two of you here this morning that have been in that row as, as a farmer of grace, and you have been sowing and sowing and sowing, and you are desperate for the second rain to fall, and, and it's so dry and it's so dark, that you don't know if you can go another day. And James would say to you, trust God's words. How do I trust God? I trust God by trusting His words. That's why there's been such an emphasis in James on the Word of God. And so, can I give you a suggestion? If you happen to be there, you're in a hard space and you're in a dark place and you just, man, your your soul is being crushed. Your feet are starting to tremble and and you just feel like you're going to get pushed off your row. Can I give you a suggestion? Would you take God's word this week and just open it up and read the book of Job? 
Let God's words counsel you. Just read the book of Job. And when you read the book of Job, make sure you read chapters 1 and 2. Because Job never, never got chapters 1 and 2 until he got to heaven. You get to see stuff that Job never saw. And just like there was stuff going on that Job never saw, there's stuff going on that you don't see. There's stuff God is doing that is so stunning. It's so, it's so jaw-dropping. And if, if you could just glimpse that, it would make all of this easy. It would make all of this worthwhile. But you don't know any of it because you can't see it, just like Job couldn't see it. But God has given you chapter 1 and chapter 2 so that you know that when James says God has an end, He has a goal, you're going, I get it. So would you take the book of Job and would you read it this week? You say, man, that's a big book. you got big troubles. You're in a dark place. You're going to quibble over 40 chapters? Seriously? Man, if you're starving and you're dying and your soul is being crushed, 40 chapters of oxygen, 40 chapters of nourishment, 40 chapters of steel in your soul, would you just take the book of Job and ask God to use it to transform your vision as you wait for the coming of God's reign? Lord, thank you for this text. Lord, you put so much here. It's so impossible to even begin to unpack it all. And yet, Lord, we are so thankful that you gave us this word. And I pray this morning that the words I've said about the words that James wrote down for us would not get in the way of the word that you have placed before us. I pray that Lord, every one of us would hunger for those words. Lord, we want to be like those farmers. We want to wait eagerly and anticipate the coming of the rain. And Lord, some of us have been waiting our whole lives for that. Help us not to grow weary. Help us not to stop anticipating that it could happen now. It could happen tomorrow. Help us never to lose our anticipation that your promise will be fulfilled and it could be fulfilled at any moment. And you didn't design it that way to frustrate us. You didn't design it that way so that we would live in, in fear and terror. You actually designed it that way so that we would have hope. And so may the promise of the reign of your coming bring confidence and strength to our hearts so that we can get up tomorrow and sow another row of grace in the hard place where you've put us. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.